Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT. Because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises. From the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer. Which is why no matter what line of work you're in, They've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. We start another week. Uh, thanks so much for all of your uh, texts and emails and messages last week. Uh, particularly seem to be enjoying the Sunday shows at 50. Uh, last week we did the explosion in the early noughties. This week we'll bring you the story of Andrew Marr's time on the Sunday sofa from taking over from David Frost to his decision to quit last year. The highs and the lows, interviewing Putin and Obama, and particularly two quite testy exchanges with Gordon Brown. That's coming up on the podcast on Friday. Today, though, it's uh, Monday. We kick off today. We've got a brand new chief political commentator on Times Radio. Regular listeners of the podcast will know her, though, very well. It is, of course, Lucy Fisher. She's back at the Times, and she's going to walk us through the five big things that we need to keep an eye on in British politics. The events, the people, the trends. That's coming up on the podcast in just a moment. First, though, as ever, we kick off with our economist panel, and it's Monday, so it must be Libby Rachie, it's Libby Purvis, and Rachel Sylvester. So, Libby, let's talk about your column today and P&O. Uh, the, uh, the, you, you've sort of, it's, it's a full potted history of the history of P&O and how we went from being a nice, um, uh, and not everyone's favourite ferry company to everyone's least favourite ferry company. You even like to a rat in a moment. It is quite extraordinary how this firing everyone and hiring an agency has just sort of fought, well, hold them below the waterline. It was so crass. It was so crass that Gerald Ratner himself has a sort of plaintive little thing saying, I never did anything like that. I just made a bad joke. But yeah, it's um, it struck me as interesting because it, it seemed to be the extreme version of this business school idea that outsourcing is always a good thing. Uh, you know, you, you don't have people who are your own people who know you, who are loyal to you, who have worked with you for years. What you do with a lot of activities is you simply outsource it. You know, it happens 
happens in in local authorities and care. It happens in just about you know everything. You remember the famous Gate Gourmet Row when a Swiss company backed by a Texas investment bank was doing the meals for British Airways, and they treated their workforce very badly, and that then brought the whole uh, you know Heathrow more or less to a standstill uh, in '05. Um, so I just wanted to write about outsourcing as well. But I mean, at the heart of it is this really depressing attitude by the Dubai-based ownership of P&O that the quickest way to cut costs is to throw everybody off and get the cheapest available agency workers and get security people to um, uh, defy the the, the um, existing staff who are kind of baffled and miserable. And I very much admire the few guys in Scotland at Cairn Ryan who, on discovering what this job was, the agency was sending them to. They'd been told it was a new ship and they realised it was P&O and there were all the people being thrown off and so they just walked out, you know, and that, that was a magnificent. But um, they were obviously people who needed the job pretty badly themselves. So oh, the whole thing is just is just filthy, really. And I think we need to look carefully at business ethics in general and how far the sort of business school mantra of, you know, hive everything out cheaply is a good idea. The, the interesting thing, Rachel, is that there have been quite a lot of companies who found when they do outsource things, um, you know, it doesn't always work. And basically, if you if you do it because you are just trying to drive down costs and pay people less and basically treat them quite badly, actually, in the long term, you just end up with a less good business. The, the point that, that, yeah. that Libby's making is that if you've got P&O staff paid by P&O, working for P&O, probably for many years, in the P&O uniform and all of that, taking pride in what they do, they're going to provide a better service than somebody bust in from an agency, paid terribly, and they could be bust to somewhere else tomorrow. Exactly. And loyalty matters and human beings matter in a business or in a public service, actually. And there is that sense about this that it's uh, P&O has become a company that knows the cost of everything and the value of nothing. There's that kind of unacceptable face of capitalism. Uh, but I'm also fascinated by the politics of all this, that you've had conservative MPs and ministers rushing to condemn this in a way that I think wouldn't have happened so quickly, at least in the past. Yeah. And now with the new sort of red wall vote who the Tories depend on, they're now highlighting, you know, the importance of responsible capitalism and good business in a way that I think wouldn't have happened in the days of, you know, the most sort of free market privatisation, all guns blazing uh, for the market. And there is, there has been that really significant shift uh, in the Tory party because there's been a sort of shift in the country, I think. And Libby, I sp- the, the interesting thing is because we, we had, spoke to Barry Gardner just a few minutes ago, and he's he's had this bill, this this to try and outlaw fire and rehire. I mean, it's slightly different with PNO because we just fire and hire somebody else on some terrible conditions. But um, when this came before the Commons last October, uh, Tory MPs talked it out. The B, uh, the government filibustered it out, and now so now to suddenly say, oh, it's terrible all this. If only if only we could have done something. I think there has been a change. I think Rachel's right. There's been a curious sort of national shift, partly the business of red wall Tories and so on, Tories. But I think because key workers, because people, you know, that, that wonderful line somebody put up on Twitter, you know, there was no lockdown. Middle class people hid while working class people brought them things. I think a sense of key workers, a sense of the great mass of people who do sort of jobs with, without which society cannot hold together, a new kind of respect for them has sort of grown in people who previously didn't have it. And and under the line, we've got 
one or two kind of harumphing people saying P&O must make as much profit as possible. It's their duty. That's what companies do. But we've got an awful lot of sympathy. And I've had letters from two chief executives this morning saying, yeah, right, you know, we really do need to value our people. And that's the only way businesses can really be successful. So there's been a sort of slight sea change, I think, in, in the more callous end of society noticing the rest. And do you think that will hold, Rachel, or do you think that, that um, as we get back to normal, in inverted commas, that actually people will forget all about that? This, this sort of valuing people who do tough jobs, even if they aren't paid very much? I think there's been quite a big shift, actually, in what people think matters in life. And actually, it's more than just making money. And I think the pandemic kind of exacerbated or accelerated that. But that's a trend that's been going on for quite some time. Uh, and I don't think it will shift back very quickly, actually. Um, that it, I think people ha- do feel that they want time to spend with their family as well at, as at work. Uh, and they feel that companies should be- treat their staff decently. It's part of the same thing that there's more to life than money, there's more to life than profit. Uh, and I don't think that's going to go away, actually. Well, there's, um, <laughs> there is more to life than money, but money is quite important right now. Uh, Rishi Sunak's got his spring statement on Wednesday. Um, lots of uh, pressures well, across the board, really, when it comes to the, the cost of living crisis. Uh, some suggestions that he could announce a temporary cut in fuel duty uh, of up to 5p a litre. It comes as uh, new figures this morning show... Average pump prices have hit new record highs. The uh, data firm Experium Catalyst says the average price of a litre of fuel uh, yesterday at four courts in the UK was 167p for petrol and 179p for diesel. The politics of, uh, of fuel duty is interesting, Rachel. I mean, George Osborne made a, made a career out of uh, freezing fuel duty. Um, uh, there's been lots of pressure, actually, particularly from environmentalists, for it to be put up. Uh, do you think that Rishi Sunak might, might go further and actually cut it? I think all the indications are that he might well do that. And, of course, it highlights yet again the clash between the government's promise to reach net zero in the sort of environmental agenda and the cost of living crisis. And those two things are at odds. Uh, and in the end, it's I think the government will always... Uh, Uh, you know, back the cost of living, bringing down the cost of living crisis rather than saving the planet. Um, uh, Because in the end, that's where the votes are. So it's sort of politics over the planet in a way. Um, But I think what's interesting about this as well is that there's been some talk about, you know, the Ukraine crisis is Boris Johnson's Falklands moment. This is all going to save him. And, you know, everyone's forgotten all about Partygate. But in the end, if people feel poorer at the time of the next election, that's what's going to make them really cross with the government. And that's not that's not going to change. And that's only going to deepen. Um, So I think Rishi Sunak will be under huge pressure from the prime minister, apart from anyone else, to do more on this. Uh, the problem is, Libby, we've seen this before, cutting 5p from fuel duty will cost an enormous amount of money from uh, uh, from the Treasury's coffers. And will people notice? Will they give any? Because you end up sort of um, the, the price of petrol being 5p cheaper than it might otherwise have been. It's quite a complicated sort of um, thought experiment for drivers to go through. So it could cost Rishi Sunak loads of money. He'll get no credit at all for it. And we'll still be at record levels of petrol prices. 
I think that's right. And I think also the the cities will notice less than the countryside. I mean, places like this with basically no public transport, a lot of people will have to give up their jobs because they will realise it's better to go on benefits than to spend so much money on petrol getting to the small job they have and getting the children to school than, um, uh, than, they're, than they're going to save. So it, it's... Um, I, I think it might not be noticed. I mean, in, in a way, Sunak might want to just hold the line and see what happens. Um, it'll be very interesting to see tomorrow. Yeah, it'll be, yes. Is it tomorrow? No, yeah, tomorrow. Uh, Wednesday. Wednesday. Wednesday, Wednesday, yeah. Wednesday at half twelve. Uh, just finally, I wanted to ask you about, because um, you've been chairing the, the Times' Education Commission, and there's been some criticism of the government, of the, the terms of reference of the government's COVID inquiry. Uh, because education and the impact on children doesn't seem to really be a part of it, even though it was one of the major stories of the pandemic. Yeah, and actually this has been the problem all the way through, hasn't it? It's been the debate was always about lives versus livelihoods and children's life chances were completely ignored through much of the pandemic. And now the terms of reference for this COVID inquiry have been published and there's no mention of children whatsoever. And it's part of a sort of piece with a wider sort of downgrading of young people and education by the government. So, Mm. you know, we had that briefing by David Canzini, the new uh, Prime Minister's new Deputy Chief of Staff to Downing Street aides um, recently. And he set out the government's priorities between now and the election. Education didn't feature at all on that list of five top priorities, which is extraordinary given what children have gone through in terms of lost learning and mental health crisis. And you look at the figures on spending, um, you know, the health spending will have gone up 42% between 2010 and 2025, education spending 3%. It's just dropped down the list of Whitehall priorities. And I think that's really tragic when, you know, it should be about levelling up. If it's about anything, it's about making sure everyone has the chance to maximise their potential. That's about education. It's not about bus routes and local mayors, apart from to the extent that they can help people maximise their potential. (laughs) It's also, um, uh, Libby, it just struck me as just in terms of lessons learned, there could be something different to, uh, uh, you know, aerosol-based um, virus uh, causing a pandemic, but just something else could come along which could massively disrupt education. And learning the lessons of that and how not to repeat the, the mistake seems like just quite an obvious thing that this inquiry should be doing. It does. I mean, my trouble is I'm a miserable old git who tends to wonder whether anything solid comes out of these big pompous <laughs> inquiries. Uh, but despite that cynicism, it is necessary that their terms of reference should be properly drawn up. And as Rachel rightly points out, they haven't been properly drawn up. Children are hardly considered. Students are not really considered. You know, the massive unfairness of universities mm. shortchanging kids, charging for empty halls they can't go to and for online lectures. Uh, you know, all these things should be brought, you know, if you're going to have an inquiry, then do it properly and consider everything that was affected. And the young people and children were massively, massively and adversely affected, especially the poorest, through all these last two years. Libby Burris and Rachel Sylvester then of course you can read them in the Times every week just get yourself a subscription go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box up next is Lucy Fisher's Things to Watch Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com website creation is hard but now with Bluehost you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away 
From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. Yes, we're only a quarter of the way into 2022 and it's already been a pretty memorable year in politics, albeit one that... uh, we might like to forget. We've had the pandemic, which consumed our lives for two years. Sonny disappeared as a major political issue. The Prime Minister was close to being voted out of office by his own party before re-emerging on the world stage as part of the Western response to Russian invasion of Ukraine. We've had record numbers of channel boat crossings, a political defection, the first foreign leader addressing the House of Commons, questions over the conduct of party whips, a reshuffle, and so much more. Thankfully, to guide us all through it, the Times Radio has a brand new chief political commentator, Lucy Fisher, who starts today. So we've got a working hard on from day one. Lucy joins me now. Morning. Good morning, Matt. Thanks How's for it been me. so far? I mean, you're familiar with the bill because obviously with the Times for, for some time uh, before you went off and had a sabbatical. But now you're back. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, how is it being in the Times Radio studios? It's great being in the mothership. Everyone is so friendly and enthusiastic and supportive. And it's just amazing the views of the City of London and the Thames down below. So you feel like so you're on high, powerful. Better than when you're in the Times office on the roof of Parliament. Correct. The, <laughs> the, the porter cabin with the shattered windows and, and uh, perennial leaks. Yeah, lovely stuff. Right, so uh, what we're going to do uh, is Lucy's going to walk us through some of the key... Uh, the five key events, trends, people, places and issues that we need to keep an eye on in politics this year. So let's kick off with... <laughs> Lucy. <laughs> it's not going to get annoying at all. So what's the first big thing we should keep, be keeping an eye on? Well, this is will come as no surprise to listeners, but this is, of course, the week of the spring statement. All the focus in Westminster is on the economy, um, which is facing pretty dire headwinds, and what Rishi Sunak is going to do to alleviate the cost of living crisis that's besieging families. What do you think he's going to do? Because I know you spoke to him yesterday, because you um, presented T&G with Tom, and he said he's, he's very keen to present, I get it, I'm going to do something, uh, we, we, but I can't do everything. Yeah. Uh, and, but he's in this problem, isn't he? Because he, because of the pandemic, it's, it's ratcheted up expectations that every time a problem comes along, Rishi Sunak gets the checkbook out. Well, that's right. And the expectations are high. That's why I think his, uh, the management of that so far has been him trying to warn people that, yes, he's in listening mode. They don't have their fingers stuck in their ears at the Treasury, but that this is a difficult time uh, and that he can't, tackle every element of the cost of living crisis. And it is growing in a way. It started with um, energy bills, which are going to rise from next month. By 54%, the cap will rise, just uh, around £2,000. At the petrol pump, we're seeing record fuel prices um, today. Uh, It's reached uh, 167 pence for a litre of petrol, 179 pence for a litre of diesel. 
Then, of course, there's the weekly food shop going up and the grocery bill is really being hit, um, not only by inflation, which is set to peak at 8%, but of course by the Russia-Ukraine conflict, because, of course, they are big exporters of wheat and grain and that's being affected. Do you think that we will... Because I suppose the initial thing was that Rishi Sunak, this, this is a spring statement, it's not a budget, the budget's now been moved to the autumn. This was supposed to be a very small technical update on where we were when it came to spending and borrowing and so on. Do we get Rishi Sunak telling the nation some hard truths or is this going to be another extraordinary moment where actually it's what fueled most of his popularity, that at a time of national crisis, soaring cost of living, Rishi Sunak... Uh, empathises and then spends loads of money. Where do you think we are on the sort of um, spending loads of money versus, sorry, I can't help this time? Well, I think we know he's going to spend some money. That was the clear mood music from his broadcast round and talking to Times Radio yesterday. I don't think it's going to be a huge amount of money. As you say, you know, the government's been trying to really play down uh, the spring statement as just a kind of fiscal and economic forecast update. I'm told there won't be a bound red book. It'll be a, a, a paper clipped um, uh, <laughs> document that will be very. This is very thin. important. This is about the station. The use of stationery. The is use very of stationery. And I'm told that the chancellor will come out of Downing Street. He won't be with his red box holding that up for a big photo shoot like we usually see at the budget. All part of the optics to try and play this down. There is going to be some headroom um, announced. We are going to see that the Treasury has received higher than expected receipts. And that puts pressure on Rishi Sunak to spend more. At the same time, with inflation rising, that makes the cost of servicing public debt ever more expensive. And we know that debt is now more than 100% of GDP for the first time in decades. The deficit is colossal after spending £400 billion on the coronavirus pandemic. So he will want to keep a little bit of leeway um, as we see sort of difficult months ahead. And just finally, before we move on to the next one, how are relations between number 11 and number 10? Because at various times it's been characterised as Boris Johnson wants to spend the money, which says, no, you can't. Uh, when Boris Johnson wanted to spend money on the NHS, Richard Sinat said, well, we have to put up national insurance to pay for it. You know, where, where are we in that tense relation? And obviously at various points, even, even early this year, Richard Sinat seemed primed to replace Boris Johnson. Well, that's right. It has seemed a little fraught at times. I think Rishi Sunak plays quite a canny game at making clear where he disagrees with the Prime Minister without saying that actively. Yesterday we heard him um, distance himself from the Prime Minister's perhaps ill-chosen analogy likening the Ukrainians' fight to defend their country with their lives to people voting in a in a free and fair election for Brexit. Um, but he didn't criticise the Prime Minister they're very different personalities. They're from different generations. Uh, I think at the moment, uh, the, Prime, the Prime Minister wants to see more spending. The Chancellor certainly wants to maintain a reputation or develop a reputation for fiscal responsibility. At the same time, as you mentioned, he's got his eyes potentially on the top job himself one day. So he doesn't want to be an unpopular Chancellor by making people go through austerity. Yeah, so basically what he does is he's to keep Conservative MPs happy who think we should have a smaller state while also giving all those Conservative MPs the small bits of money that they like for their particular pet projects. Uh, well, we'll find out what we should say because they're actually going to do it 12.30 on Wednesday. We'll bring that to you live on Times Radio and then we'll unpack it all when we're uh, live in Leeds on Thursday. So that was number five. Now it's time for... Right, number four in your list of uh, five things to keep an eye on this year, Lucy. 
Well, this is the net zero struggles. Um, Very fashionable to be green. It seemed at the beginning of Boris Johnson's premiership quite an easy way for him to overhaul the reputation of a party that sometimes uh, lambasted as nasty. But it's become a a real kind of touch point um, between those more on the centre of the party and those on the right. We've seen that over the weekend as some of the tensions between the Prime Minister and the Chancellor have spilt over into the public realm over um, the energy strategy. Boris Johnson said two weeks ago that it would be announced within days. We've still seen nothing yet. Could be this week, could be next he's got, week. He's chairing a round table. That's always a sign that they can't work out what to do when the number 10 hosts a round table. Absolutely. That's a, as you say, that's a sign they're trying to show there's action without actually being anything firmly um, announceable, available. So the Prime Minister wants to forge ahead with some really expensive investment into nuclear power. At the moment, it makes up about 15% of the UK's energy mix, but that's due to um, plunge by 2030 as the majority of the nuclear fleet of power stations will retire. It's not just um, those cabinet ministers. We saw um, at the Tory spring conference in Blackpool, Oliver Dowden speak out against what he called net zero dogma. That then provoked a backlash from Zach Goldsmith, the environment minister, who's very pro-green policies. And then when you come to the backbenches, um, we've had a lot in recent months from the net zero scrutiny group, Craig McKinley and Steve Baker, very vocal in their um, opposition to the cost and the speed at which the government's trying to achieve net zero. That's by 2050. Now we've heard hearing about the net zero support group. Now, this is fascinating. <laughs> I mean, this is one to update your wall charts at home. So we already had the net zero scrutiny group. So they were sort of anti the net zero strategy. But now we've got the net zero support group. Who, who are, are very favorite. pro it and want to row in hard. It doesn't help, perhaps, that they have the same uh, acronym, the same initials. <laughs> they might have been a little bit more NZSG. inventive. NZSG, yeah. And what about, because, um, yeah, the ER, obviously in the past we've had the ERG and the CRG and, and all of that. Um, which of those two groups, I mean, there's obviously the actual group. So which, which do you think has the greater force on the Tory backbenches? I think at the moment they're pretty well balanced. On the one hand, um, you know, the Prime Minister chaired COP. It's a big part of the legacy he's trying to build to sort of stage himself as this big champion of the environment and the green agenda. At the same time, with the cost of living crisis, it's just a huge part of the problem economically for the country. And, you know, he has made clear he wants to see more drilling for oil and gas in the North Sea. There's been much more talk of gas being the transition energy, the energy of this decade before we get to some of the the technologies being available for mass rollout later down the line. I think in a way the Russian war gives him a bit of cover with, you know, Most people agree it's right to phase out Russian imports of gas and oil by the end of this year. That does need to be replaced by something. So I think that that helps him. We should mention Nigel Farage and all this. We should indeed. He's trying to muscle in on this now, isn't he, by um, pioneering a new referendum um, on on the net zero target. He thinks that that could be uh, an issue that people could be galvanised against in the same way he did with Brexit. It's interesting, that sort of... the the, the hard rights, you know, I suppose you'd call them, who had huge influence during Brexit. They tried to do a similar thing over COVID, but actually the number of people who, who, who were sort of anti-COVID restrictions was pretty small. Mm-hmm. And trying to mobilise people on having a referendum on the net zero strategy, when it was literally, I was also on the front page of the Conservatives Manifesto in 2019, might be a slightly harder one to get off the ground. Now it's time for... 
Number three, the person we should be looking out for, Lucy. Who is it? It's David Canzini. Now, he may not be a household name, at least yet, but he's a key ally of uh, Linton Crosby, well-known as the Wizard of Oz, the key uh, election strategist. And he's been brought in to do two things, get the party ready for a general election and also to try and um, loop in disgruntled backbenchers and get them on side with the Prime Minister again after the turbulence uh, his administration faced at the beginning of this year. I think he's a fascinating character. He gave an address to um, the special advisers, what's known as SPAD School, the weekly uh, update they have on a Friday. And he warned them, you better be ready for an election next year, slightly reframing expectations that it was going to be May 2024 at the earliest. And he, uh, I was reading about this in the Times of the weekend, he had this sort of, the government's top five priorities. Number one was Brexit. Then the cost of living crisis, the NHS crime and migrant boats were the others. And even an aide who was there sort of pointed out, we're in the middle of a sort of, well, as they say, we're on the brink of a generational cost of living crisis, yet Brexit was top of the list. Yeah, interesting. I think it speaks to, obviously, we know that CT Group, the, the company he's come from, um, before he took up this role, does a lot of um, focus groups. It does a lot of surveying and polling of the public to understand what motivates and drives them. So... I thought that was interesting as well, that he didn't go for cost of living. He thought delivering on the promises of Brexit, which is very closely linked to levelling up, is a really key issue. He said his priority for the government ahead of the general election. In a way, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because Boris Johnson's stunning 80-seat majority in December 2019 was in large part down to winning swathes of seats across the North and Midland. That, in turn, was underpinned by a promise to, you know, pour investment into those areas, boost local transport, infrastructure, broadband. So far, that hasn't really happened. I suppose it's interesting, isn't it? Because you could look at it two ways. One is they're trying to refight the old war. Yes. Just keeping Brexit going when basically people have moved on because, you know, the, the public think that's done. And yet, actually, if they can go into the election pointing at some cast iron things that we have done as a result of Brexit, then that might actually help. We might get given the benefit of the doubt. But I suppose it depends a bit, doesn't it, if people think that you win elections based on what you're going to promise to do next time or on saying, well, we delivered... Because you could say, well, we've done all that now. And actually, that that almost gives a space for Labour to say, well, you know, they've done that now. Yeah. Yeah, what's... What's the new idea? Well, I think that's right. And the Conservatives themselves will be wanting to say, look, we delivered for you. That's a big tick in the box for us. Um, So I think it is um, curious in in that sense that they want to dwell on that. But I think it will be about linking it to levelling up. NHS waiting lists are going to be a big problem. It didn't surprise me that that was on his list. Again, crime, small boats... At the moment, there's so much um, airtime rightly being taken up by the Ukraine conflict. But there are these underlying problems, policy problems bubbling under that haven't gone away. It's also interesting that they're all very reactive. It's not like a sort of Tony Blair style, you know, introduce foundation hospitals, reform schools. It's all very, you know, here's a problem. And three years in, we haven't found a solution yet to small boats or rising NHS waiting lists. It's very... So these are the problems the country faces and we've got to find something to do about it rather than any big vision stuff about proactively changing something. 
Well, I agree with you on that. I think people, the public, have probably given Boris Johnson a lot of leeway because of the pandemic being this unprecedented, unpredictable global crisis for the first two years of his term. But you're right. When people ask the question, what is Johnsonism? It's very difficult to give any flesh to the bones of that. Um, He does talk a lot about levelling up. He is in many ways a good communicator, but it it, it is a policy-like administration so far. And he has found himself backed into corners. And I think he does need to deal with some of these issues. You have to deal with those before you can start building on a firmer base um, to overhaul, as you say, sort of whether it's healthcare or, or education or so forth. So that's David Conzini is the person to watch. Now we come to number two. This is the place to keep an eye on. Where should we be looking at, Lucy? Well, I'm very interested in Berry. Um, which is uh, one of the key councils, I think, to watch in the upcoming local elections on May the 5th. It is, of course, the um, town in which we saw uh, a Conservative MP, Christian Wakeford, defect to Labour. He had one of the smallest majorities in the Conservative Party. Unclear if perhaps he only thought a couple his... of months ago. It feels only like a couple a, of months a, ago. years ago, but it was only a couple of months ago that extraordinary moment at PMQs when he got up and walked across the House of Commons. It was it was a remarkable moment, um, and I think many people think perhaps he had a slight eye on his own re-election chances by making that move. So it will be interesting um, to see whether the Tories can maintain support there. Um, also, several councils to watch out for in London, a key one of which is Wandsworth, which has been controlled by the Conservatives since 1978, shortly before Margaret Thatcher entered Downing Street. And I've spoken to senior government sources who are very concerned that the Tories might see that for the first time in decades. And that would be a bit of a seismic moment, not helped in part by there being boundary changes there, but uh, it seems their support is, is draining away. Be interesting that as well, given that Boris Johnson's reputation was built on being mayor of London, the, the, the guy could reach parts of London that other Tories couldn't. Um, but would the Tories say, well, London is now a Labour city, but we win everywhere else, so it doesn't matter? Well, they would say that, but we need to see if that plays out around the rest of the country. But we have to look at those corresponding northern towns. Northern towns. And see if that is yeah. still the case. In a way, some of those towns only have a third of their councillors up for election. So it's sometimes difficult to see um, large scale trends when it's just councils moving incrementally by by thirds. But another one I'll be watching is Newcastle under Lyme in Staffordshire. The local MP there is a Conservative, Aaron Bell, who has publicly put in a letter of no confidence in the Prime Minister. So could be another one to see whether the Tories managed to hold uh, hold that after gaining it for the first time in recent years. It would also be interesting uh, to see what progress, if any, the Lib Dems make, given that they've had, a, you know, particularly in the last year or so, they've made you know, some by-election wins and that sort of thing. Are they now coming back in some of their old southwesty strongholdy areas? Because that might pave the way to them being able to challenge the Tories in some of their their seats where where Brexit might have receded a bit as an issue. Yeah, I think it's possible. It's they've had a difficult time of it with the pandemic. I think Keir Starmer, you know, being the main opposition leader, um, has struggled for visibility. Ed Davies done, you know, far worse. They've not really been able to capitalise on any issue. They've flirted with the idea of making civil liberties another core issue again, but it hasn't really caught fire for them. I do think that there is a sense um, in parts of the more prosperous Tory shires in in the South, um, people there who may be tempted by the Lib Dems might feel a bit 
uh, deserted or, or neglected by the Conservatives with all the focus going yeah, on, yeah. on the Red Wall. And I think that's where the Lib Dems are channelling all their energy to try and win some seats. Yeah, it might be that Lib Dems' best, best thing is just not being the Tories. And in some areas, that means that they'll pick up, they'll pick up some votes. Right, we're counting through Lucy's top five things to watch. So now it's time for number... One. Excellent. Uh, we are talking, we're talking about Keir Starmer. Um, this is particularly to do with the Labour Party. Yeah, well, this is about the party uh, being on the brink of financial collapse, potentially, Uh, comes after uh, having to go through a round of mass redundancies, asking staff to accept a real terms pay cut. And this is in part because they have lost a lot of members um, since the end of the Corbyn era, people who um, are unhappy with the more moderate stance taken by Keir Starmer and the ditching of some of those more radical policy positions. That's left them uh, with £8 million in dues short. Um, And now Unite, one of their biggest funders, is threatening to pull uh, all support entirely. And what about, is Keir Starmer not attracting any alternative uh, lines of funding? The sort of Tony Blair you know, rich people digging out their checkbooks for the Labour Party. Is that not happening as he sort of cements himself as a possible alternative prime minister? Well, he is, but it's a very um, piecemeal process. It does risk alienating um, parts of the Labour base who who don't like to see slick businessmen um, swanning in, gaining influence, joining kind of clubs, having dinners and access. If if you're currently criticising Boris Johnson's, you know, playing tennis with Russians or whatever it is, it's quite difficult if you then invite some other... Which bods in? Well, well, exactly. That said, we know that last summer he met with a member of the Sainsbury family, traditionally given a lot of money to Labour, um, a billionaire property developer, a retail heiress. There are people that they are in conversations with. At the same time, you often see these wealthy donors um, make quite uh, cynical decisions. They want to back winners. I think that there's a sense at the moment, it's unclear how strong a chance Labour have in the next election. And I think when we get a bit closer to a poll, then you might see that crystallise into serious donations or people thinking, I don't think they can do it. I don't want to waste my money, as it were. I suppose actually going back to the local elections, that's that's a point at which we might see a bit of momentum with a small M behind the Labour Party, possibly, or not. Um, we haven't mentioned Partygate, but we possibly should. Where are we in the process of resolving it? And do you think it will play any part in those local elections? Yeah, I do. I think it hasn't gone away uh, as an issue, despite Jacob Rees-Mogg dismissing it as fluff. Fluff, mere fluff. Uh, mere fluff in comparison to um, the, the scenes of carnage we're seeing in Ukraine. I think there is still a high degree of anger uh, about that. But, of course, you can't keep up momentum with a scandal like that. You know, it was amazing to my mind how long it ran in the first place, given we're in this era of 24-7 news. People have short uh, TikTok-style attention spans. I think we don't know, frankly, when the police are going to come back with their decisions on fixed penalty notices. One thing I think has been underpriced is the idea that there could be potentially quite a significant number of people in Downing Street who receive the fixed penalty notices while the main boss, Boris Johnson, doesn't. I think there's a good rationale for thinking he probably won't because he always has a reason to have been there. It's his home and it's his workplace. Um, And I think if there are junior staff who feel that they've been thrown under a bus or they're getting punished when the senior echelons of power aren't, we could see more briefing. We could see more people turning against him. There are reports at the moment that morale is not is not great in parts of Downing Street. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see um, how that pans out because we actually did 
It was just, it was actually just the night before. It was the night that the Russian invasion of Ukraine started. We didn't play out very much of it. We did our most recent Times Radio focus group. And it was by far and away the worst one we've ever had for Boris Johnson. In a way that previously people had complained, where have you found these people? They're giving the Prime Minister the benefit of the doubt and they think he's good at doing a good job. And actually former Labour, former Tory voters now undecided across the board said they thought he should have resigned. Every time he popped up on the telly, they were cross all over again about the fact he hadn't resigned. And if if that has that that idea has cemented in people's minds, actually what uh, Ukraine might be doing is just that's just a different thing which is going on. People have made up their minds about Boris Johnson. Or will it be shifting people's opinions of Boris Johnson because they might per- perceive he's doing a good job of, of handling the response to it? And we don't we just don't know. In fact we're gonna, I think we're doing we're doing another focus group next week. So we maybe we we might get a better sense of that um to update people's views. Well, Lucy, it's been lovely to speak to you. Uh, it's Lucy Fisher. So somebody's, somebody's texted in uh, saying Lucy Fisher is a great hire for Times Radio. That's from Lucy's mum. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, that's from Annette. And then somebody else has texted in and said, who's this commentator? She's good. There we are. Uh, it's Lucy Fisher, our new chief political commentator here on Times Radio. She'll be here. We're going to have her on loads because uh, I've known Lucy for a long time, so she can do lots of work. Uh, so uh, she'll be here um, uh, all, all right through the week, Monday to Friday, here on Times Radio. But that was Lucy Fisher counting down her top five things to look out for. The event was the spring statement happening this week. The trend was net zero. The person was David Canzini. The place was Bury, where they've got local elections happening. The issue was Labour's finances. That was Lucy's top five. <laughs> That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.